0: Fuck public transportation. Seriously, every time Sammy rode the bus, there was always some weirdo ruining her ride. Like today, for instance. All she'd wanted to do was hit the mall after school, and being without a car, the bus was her only choice. She boarded, sat down, and sighed the sigh of relief that the damn thing was nearly empty. But now? Now, a man was opposite her, mumbling to himself fingers fidgeting and overall just being a creep. She couldn't focus on her phone, feeling eyes fixated on her. It was almost as if her scalp was being pricked by a needle. If only Sam was less judgmental. Maybe she'd have seen how the man, in a simple monk's habit, was looking just above her head. A bead of sweat rolled down his neck as he recited the Lord's prayer hoping to banish the demon breathing over the girl's auburn hair.
1: your eyes. No sleep. Tales of horror to frighten and disturb. No sleep. What's that sound you hear from beneath your bed?
2: <laughs> no sleep.
1: Join us as the sleepless hours tick past. public transportation. It's good for the environment and quite economical, and you can even make friends while riding it. That's what we learned from author Lex Reckless from the tale which was this episode's cold open, Creepers on the Bus, performed by Kristen DiMercurio. We hope everyone enjoyed a spooktacular Halloween season. But of course, when it comes to the Halloween spirit of horror, it's a 24-7, 365 kind of thing for us. Regardless, I want to offer up my thanks and recognize the No Sleep team for their Herculean efforts in making our Halloween specials so good. Between the full-length regular episode and the Season Pass Halloween bonus episode, we produced well over five hours of Solwyn scares on the Halloween weekend. Well done, team! Your treats for us were extra sweet, and our pumpkins were well and truly smashing. And so, as I said, there is no rest from the horror, despite what the calendar says. It's November, so be thankful for lots more sleepless horror. And now, check under the bed and pull the sheets up tight. The darkness is here, but you'll be sleepless tonight. In our first tale, we visit a famous haunted house attraction. You might think that with Halloween over, there wouldn't be much interest in something like that. But in this tale, shared with us by author Robbie Slavin, we learn that Mr. Becker's haunted house is world famous. So famous that a mysterious visitor to the house just can't seem to stay away. Performing this tale are David Alt and Jake Benson. So go and enjoy the chills and thrills of the house. Just try to avoid the person known as the Collector.
2: Staring
3: at the screen, I recognize him straight away. The camera can't see his face, but I know it's him from the long black coat and top hat that he was wearing the night before. I am the owner of the greatest haunted house experience in the world. People from around the globe flock to it all year round to be scared out of their minds. There really is nothing like it anywhere else out there. Many have tried to find out how I do it with the hope of copying it elsewhere, but they just can't figure it out. Many think I'm an accomplished illusionist, while others think I'm using technology the rest of the world hasn't found out about yet. It drives them mad. It has given me wealth beyond my wildest dreams. People just can't get enough. The difference between the haunted house and my home is that people are invited to the former when I'm there to supervise. When it comes to the latter, I very rarely welcome visitors. The man I am looking at had visited the haunted house the previous night. I get all sorts of people that dress for the occasion, and upon setting eyes on him I assumed he was doing the same. Those customers are often the most enthusiastic, but while the others around him were losing their minds, he didn't flinch. Even during the most horrifying jump scares that shred the nerves of the bravest people without fail. While others would look at my ghosts and buckle at the knees, he seemed to look at them like he was appraising a piece of art. It had bothered me so much that I couldn't get it out of my head. And now here he was, standing outside my front door. How he had got there without being stopped by security at the front gate was beyond me. There would be a couple of security guards looking for new jobs in the morning, but firstly, and most importantly, I had to deal with this. I wasn't worried, as my home, much like the haunted house, was like Fort Knox. No one was getting into either without my permission. I hope you like waiting, asshole, because you'll be standing out there until the police arrive. His head suddenly darts upwards, looking straight into the camera. The suddenness of the movement causes me to jump. Jesus, I had forgotten how pale he is. He lifts a finger and wags it. Okay, this is creepy. My feeling of safety has quickly evaporated. It was almost as if he heard me, but that's impossible. I shake my head to regain my composure. Time to put an end to this. Just as I'm about to press the panic button to alert the authorities, a strong hand grabs my wrist. I turn my head to find him standing beside me. The shock causes me to jump backwards, tripping over the chair behind me, which sends me crashing to the ground onto my back. Winded, I gasp for breath while I kick my legs to push me as far away from him as possible, but I soon find myself trapped in the corner of the room. I slowly gain control of my breathing while he stands on the same spot he had suddenly appeared in, watching me without expression. How did you do that? Well, much like yourself, Mr. Becker, I am a bit of a showman. I really was impressed with what you've been doing. Very creative. Sorry if I didn't show it yesterday. He takes a step towards me, holding out his hand to suggest he will help me to my feet. I refuse it, instead pushing myself up and getting to my feet while keeping as close to the wall as possible. I look around for anything I can use as a weapon. Nothing. Suit yourself. Let's get down to business, shall we? I am a collector and have been sent here by my employer to collect what is his. Sorry it's taken me so long to get round to you. I really have been quite busy. He reaches into his coat and pulls out a sheet of paper which he begins to study. "'Please, if it's money you want, I'll give you whatever you need. I, I swear I haven't taken anything from whoever you're working for, but whatever they want, it's theirs. I, I don't have much here, but I can arrange for it to—' He cuts me off as his eyes flick back to me. "'Please, Mr. Becker, I'm not in the business of collecting money. It's such a pointless thing. You have property belonging to my employer, and he will be needing it immediately. Tell me, how long have you had your gift?' My head starts to spin. My… gift? Let's not kill ourselves here. You've managed to take possession of a total of… He looks back at the sheet of paper in his hand. Thirty-six souls. Unfortunately for you, fourteen of these belong to my employer. He's quite displeased that they were stolen before he could claim them. They really were the worst kind of people from what I can see here. Definitely destined for an eternity of pain and torment. Very clever that you turn them into something that scares humanity, I must say. Like I said, very creative. I assume you quickly realize that the souls of the damned make the best ones. My heart feels like it's going to beat out of my chest. Please, uh, take them back. I I didn't realize who I was fucking with. I, I won't take any more, I promise. That's the thing, Mr. Becker. I already have. The reason I'm here is because I was only able to recover thirteen of them. And I really need you to tell me where to find the missing one. My blood turns cold. One of them was destroyed in my attempts to control it. I really didn't mean to. I trail off. Words are beginning to fail me. A worried look comes across the face of the Collector. He begins to scratch his chin. I'll get you a new one. Uh, Please, I'll get you as many as you want. Just just don't... He holds out a hand to silence me as he continues to scratch his chin with the other hand. Unfortunately, Mr. Becker, I'm as busy as my employer is impatient, and I really need to bring back fourteen souls worthy of his attention immediately. I'm already running late. A smile climbs up his face as his eyes fall hungrily on me. Actually, I don't believe that's going to be
2: a problem after all.
1: If the many posts on social media are an accurate indicator, a vast majority of people love cats. Those furry little purr boxes can make us love them intensely. And in this tale, shared with us by author Anthony Criswell, a man finds that a stray kitten is a good way to work through his grief, even if his is a needy little kitty. Performing this tale is Jesse Cornett. So despite needing to feed them and clean up after them, nothing beats the love of a cat. Even a cat like Charlie.
4: My father had two loves. Whiskey and violence. Meanwhile... My mother huddled herself away in prescription pills and excuses. Excuses why she could never leave him and excuses why she needed more medications. I say these things factually, no malice for either of them in my heart. In the end, maybe he did care more for her than I thought, because when he found her body dead from an apparent overdose, He drank himself into a stupor, put his Smith & Wesson 442 to his head, and joined her. At least, this is the story etched together by the police and relayed to me. They didn't believe my mother's overdose to be intentional, and truth be told, neither do I. It's more likely that she didn't care either way maybe being alive and dying had become such vagaries to her that it simply didn't matter to her anymore. Much in the way a drunk stops caring how much they've already drunk, only looking forward to the next one and the one after. They died almost ten years ago, and the day of their funeral, after burying them both, Listening to the preacher of the only church they had ever attended tell bald-faced lies about the qualities of their character was the day I met Charlie. Charlie is, was, my cat. I found him outside my apartment building when I came home that night. My grandparents hosted a wake at their home in Stillwater, but after a brief time there, I took my leave and headed back to my apartment in Tulsa. I hated the condolences, but more than that, I hated the pained look on my grandmother's face, watching her daughter go through so much, trying over and over to help and being turned away each time. I was walking up the stairs to my third floor apartment thoughts a million miles away when I heard a soft mewling coming from the top of the stoop. As I crested the stairs, there sat Charlie. He was just a kitten, small and scared, alone. I'd like to think I wouldn't normally take in a stray animal, but I haven't had occasion to do so again. Looking back, I should have thrown that tiny, pathetic creature from the balcony, letting it splatter on the concrete below and saving myself from the events of the last decade. But you know what they say about hindsight. (laughs) Instead, I slowly approached him, picked him up, and felt happiness wash through me. It was as though that entire shitty day was a boat that had set sail long ago and crossed the horizon never to be seen again. Life with Charlie was like that. He had a way of making you forget your troubles, just by spending time with him. We'd sit on the couch, me playing video games, Charlie rubbing his orange head on my hands wanting my attention. Some nights we'd sit around and watch B-Horror movies, Charlie in my lap, pepperoni pizza in my hand. I loved that little guy with all my heart at the time. The first thing I noticed that was off about Charlie was his diet. Not owning a cat before, the only thing I could think to feed him that first night was canned tuna. He loved it. He ate it greedily, never leaving a speck in his dish. However, when I bought him actual cat food, he wouldn't eat it. He'd snub it, wet or dry, no matter how I tried to mask it. I thought maybe it was because I couldn't afford to buy the high-end stuff like Blue Buffalo, or maybe he was just a picky eater. Now I know better. As Charlie got older, his hunger for both food and attention grew. He'd eat seven, sometimes eight, cans of tuna a day. Easy. He also started getting into the habit of trashing the apartment when I'd leave for extended periods, staining the carpet with urine and cat shit as though he were saving it for the moment I'd leave. It was intermittent at first, but became so frequent that I began putting down newspaper over each and every square inch of carpet in the apartment only to come back and find that Charlie had ripped that very same up and still done his business on the floor. And he never did this on the tiled flooring in the kitchen or in the bathroom. It seemed purposeful, like he wanted me to regret leaving him, like he wanted me angry and frustrated on purpose. Still, the moment I pet Charlie or he rubbed against me, It was as though nothing had happened. It was all no big deal. Something to worry about tomorrow. This went on for years, with us eventually moving from the apartment to a rental house in the suburb of Broken Arrow. I hadn't gotten my deposit back for the apartment, obviously, but I had landed an accounts payable gig at a local oil company downtown, and my manager let our department work from home most of the time only going to the office to mail checks to the dying number of businesses that would only accept them as payment. This let me stay at home with Charlie and keep his damage to a minimum. The little rental house where I still live, where I'll likely die, is two bedrooms, one bath, with tile in the kitchen and bathroom, while the bedrooms and living rooms sport vinyl plank flooring a lifesaver for my trips to the grocery store and any errands I might have to run. It was nice, and I was looking forward to finally being able to invite people over to my place without fear of that awful pervasive cat smell. I had started chatting with a local guy via Grinder shortly after moving in. I had made a promise to myself to start putting myself out there when I felt I had my own financial stability. And I felt that the rental house and new job were the landmarks I needed to see that I had finally arrived at that point. His name was Jacob, and he was such a sweetheart. We had great conversations, Uh, we talked a lot about video games, his love of the Alien franchise, my love of the Scream franchise, and our shared loves of all things pasta. Eventually, we decided to go for a date to see if we clicked as well in person. I was nervous, of course. Hell, I hadn't dated in years, meaningless hookups aside, and had no clue what to expect. We decided on a rooftop dinner at El Guapo in downtown Tulsa. It was late spring, and the sun had set, leaving the air comfortably cool. The Tulsa skyline towered around us, and the enchiladas were delicious, and we left the restaurant, opting to keep the date going by taking a walk. Our chemistry was every bit as good in person as it had been through text, and against my better judgment, I asked him if he'd like to come back to my place. To my mutual delight and dread, he said he would. When I opened the door, the landscape of my home had become a nightmare. The couch, the curtains, the throw pillows, all of them were shredded. Foam and filling coated the floors, loose cloth scattered everywhere. The stench of urine and shit filled the air, and I had to hold my nose before entering. And on the couch amidst the chaos sat Charlie his eyes fixed in accusation I couldn't believe it and apparently neither could Jacob he was polite but understandably changed his mind about coming in and promised to reach out as he left he wouldn't but I didn't know that at the time. I was lucky to have shut the doors to the bedrooms and the bathroom. Who knows what Charlie would have done if they had been open? Would I even have had a bed to sleep in that night? I was furious. I slammed the door, a flush creeping into my cheeks as I marched to the couch, screaming at Charlie, asking him what his fucking problem was. All the while, he sat stone still, eyes following me, admonishing my absence. I reached the couch, reaching out to grab Charlie to throw him out of the house, to never let that awful, evil little creature back into my home or my life. As my hand neared him, though, he bit me. If this were any other cat, you'd think that this would have sealed his fate. But with Charlie, no. With Charlie, it turned out to be the opposite. The moment his fangs broke my skin, bone rending into my flesh, I felt my fury wash away. Relaxed contentment taking its place. Suddenly, nothing mattered. Not the disastrous end of an otherwise wonderful date, not the destruction of the house, and especially not the punishment of a certain cat. (laughs) From that night forward, everything changed. Charlie began eating less, ...and with less fervor. Conversely, he started to get bigger. Not like he was gaining weight, but he just started increasing in size. One day, I walked into the living room after getting a shower to find him sitting on the couch. His skin looking stretched over his body, patches of fur missing on his back and torso. His coat had lost its luster, and if he hadn't been staring directly at me, sitting straight up, I might have mistaken him for dead. I decided to take him to the vet. I threw on some shorts and a t-shirt, grabbed the keys to my Prius, and moved to pick Charlie up. He, of course, bit me. That feeling... Washed over me again. Nauseating and delightful at the same time. Charlie is fine, I thought. He's perfectly okay. It's just some bald spots from stress. That's all. Charlie didn't let go of my finger. He was chewing on it now. But... That's okay, because it didn't hurt at all. It was just fine. By the time Charlie had let me go that day, he had eaten the pinky and ring fingers of my left hand, leaving the wounds inexplicably closed. I didn't realize this until I woke up that night, bleary eyed and confused. I went to wipe the sleep from my eyes and then I saw mangled remains that had once been the digits of my hand, now little more than stumps. Now I could feel the pain, dull and aching, the pain of an abscessed tooth right under my skin. I got up slowly. Assessing my surroundings, realizing I was still in the living room, but now it was dark. The only light that illuminated the room was from the solitary window and was obscured by curtains, blurring the edges of everything in my vision. I, I had to get out. Get to a hospital. A-, a doctor. I had to get somewhere other than in my house. With Charlie held for the keys in my pocket. Still there. I started toward the door, head aching, body sore, hand throbbing in pain. Something skittered from the dark corner of the room, fast and indiscernible, coming to a stop between me and the front door. It had to be Charlie. It was much bigger than he was and faster, but what else could it be? I was frozen in place, my instincts telling me to run and fear melding my feet to the floor. Thank god damn it, think. Where can I go? How can I leave? The back door, the back door, of course. The kitchen was on my left and the door was on the far wall. If I could move fast enough, <laughs> a chittering noise came from the dark before me. A series of clicks that trilled in the black, starting low, working their way to a piercing crescendo. I lunged for the back door, but I was too slow. No, more aptly, the thing was too fast. Now it stood before me, illuminated in the light of the street lamp shining through the kitchen window, and horror and fear gripped me anew. The incandescent light revealed a creature that seemed to have come from inside of Charlie and still had bits of him attached in various places, an ear on its forehead, fur on its back, three of Charlie's legs still dangling from a cool gray body. What I could make out, what was discernible from that slanted pillar of light were four new legs, much too large to have been the legs of a cat. They were bent in angles in two spots, giving them the shape of a spider's legs. But at the ends of them, there were what I initially thought were paws with five large black talons protruding from each digit, each bent in two angles of their own. Though I couldn't see if they had joints because the light wasn't bright enough and because I quickly busied myself with an alternate plan. I ran for my bedroom in the opposite direction. I could hear the Charlie thing skittering after me, but I managed to make it into my room, slamming the door and locking it quickly. I felt back on my bed Staring at the door, hearing the thing scratch and scratch and scratch at it, trying to get in. It's keening noises rich with need and hunger. This went on for 20 minutes, I think. I I don't actually know. The only real clock I owned was my cell phone, and I had left that in the bathroom that morning. I was too concerned with Charlie. And, in my rush, I forgot to grab it. At some point, the noises stopped entirely. I was rifling through my bedside table, looking for something to numb the pain in my hand that had grown steadily worse, when I realized the only noises I heard were my own. I stopped as well, listening to the silence hand throbbing I was getting nauseous my skull felt like it was filled with liquid and I was on the verge of vomiting but I had managed to stay absolutely still then I heard the noise again but the rhythm was different instead of the insistent scratching that had filled the air previously there was now a tap tap-tap sound of claws on metal. I tried to figure out where it could possibly be. Tried to make a plan to defend myself, but the noise felt as though it came from everywhere. Oh, God. Oh, God. I grabbed the bedside lamp that sat on the table with my good hand, raising it up and in front of me chambering my elbow in anticipation of the attack. The tapping grew louder, and all too late, I realized it wasn't coming from all around me, but from above me, from the air duct. The thing had been above me that whole time, trying to remove the duct cover, quietly at first, but then... What? (sighs) Abandoning stealth... For strength? Was it intelligent enough to reason that out for itself? There was no time to consider this. The vent cover quickly became nothing more than ragged and bent metal. I ran for the door, turned the knob, heard the cover fall to the ground with a harsh clang, pushed hard on the door, and... Shit! I remembered... I had locked it.
2: Oh, God damn it! Come on! God damn it! Oh, God.
4: I fumbled for the doorknob lock, turned it, and burst from the room just as the creature bit my calf.
2: Oh, God! Ah, ah, ah. Oh.
4: Oh. I felt euphoria and relief as I fell to the ground. The pain and nausea were both gone in an instant, replaced with calm and warmth. <sighs> uh, this, this was, this was maybe a week ago. I don't. Remember what day exactly? My my head is foggy <laughs> and my body is racked by waves of pain. I've I've been in and out since that night, coming to consciousness like leaping forward in time. Once I awoke to the sound of crunching bones, to find the thing eating my foot. (laughs) It was perfectly okay, though. I felt at peace, as though the consumption of my extremities was the most natural thing in the world. When I awoke today, the creature was sitting upright, knees tucked to its chest, It's exoskeleton now strangely fleshy and growing pinker the longer I looked at it. I think it's digesting? (laughs) I have no legs now. Just stumps above where my knees used to be. I try to crawl toward the front door, then the back, but each time I do, the thing's eyes, no longer the eyes of a cat, but eyes so curiously like my own, (laughs) flit to life and send me a silent warning. So, now I'm here, in my bedroom again. I've managed to get the door shut, but... I didn't bother to lock it. What's the point? I know it's going to eat the rest of me. Become. Me. Just like it became Charlie. Maybe it had always been Charlie. (laughs) You know, no sense dwelling on it now. I'm just thankful to have left my laptop in my bag on the floor in my room. Where... I'm riding this now, Eh, I'm at peace with this end, I just want the pain to stop. (sighs) I wasn't looking for death, but when it finds me, I think that will be okay. I hurt so much, and just want something to make that hurt go away. I'm writing all this to send in an email to everyone I know so you'll know the truth about what happened to me. I'm past wanting to be saved. I think whatever toxin is in Charlie's bite is similar to opioids and even now. <laughs> I feel like I'm dying without the bliss of it. I'm ready for the end. But I need you all to know when you see me again if you see me again, that's not me. <laughs> it's
2: Charlie. <laughs>
1: The past few years have shown us that there are many unsung heroes out there serving us in our time of need. Yes, nurses deserve to be recognized for all that they do. But in this tale, shared with us by author Ivan Lopez, we meet a woman who, despite dealing with death on a regular basis, seems to enjoy her job intently. You see, she knows there's nothing dull when she works her shift. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Graham Rowett, Kyle Akers, Ellie Hirschman, Nicole Goodnight, and Mary Murphy. So be thankful for nurses. Well, most nurses. I'll let you decide how grateful you should be for the floor nurse.
5: Watching someone die is something many don't get used to. Every molecule of air seems to get sucked out of the room. And the fact that you can still take a deep breath to swear to yourself that you can feel the spirit of a person as it exits the body reminds you that there is indeed still air to breathe. In some way, it feels like you've died too. Some patients only have you for their last days of life, and something develops from it. They would probably call it a bond, but I haven't quite figured out what I'd call it. As a nurse, you get pretty good at moving past it. Yes, the deaths will affect you, but I couldn't begin to count the amount of deaths I've seen in my line of work, so just trust me when I say that it's probably tough to handle. Mr. Barker lies in front of me, gone. It was of natural causes. The man was 92, but the same feeling fills the room every time. Last night, it was Mrs. Kingston from a prescription drug overdose. She was attempting to get out of an abusive marriage. She obviously succeeded. We tried our best to save her, but pumping as much stomach acid as possible won't get the stuff out of the bloodstream. She's one I really didn't want to see go, but under her circumstances, it needed to happen. Surely it eventually would have been by him if not by her own hand. If I'm being honest... I'm glad she didn't let the bastard have the satisfaction. Now she can rest knowing she took a piece of his pride with her. I work on the floor during the night shift at Victory Regional Medical Center. An ironic name, if you ask me, considering the amount of failures we experience, but we would never disclose that, of course. I actually enjoy the job. As a homebody with no one to go home to, it gives me the chance to have a good time meeting all these new people even when they and I can only hold a relationship for a brief moment, posing the challenge of really getting to know them. Luckily, I'm really good at knowing people. People do die here, yes, but at least they'll go comfortably and never alone. I like to think that's because of me. Matching with the deceased that get wheeled out of here with smiles on their faces, the walls are a cold bluish gray, an understandable decision given the fact that blue is a calming color, But when you see the world the way I do, you can't help but see the cruel joke this place plays. It's as if they're trying to prepare you for the worst. To say, in case you've forgotten, this is a color you'll soon be seeing, and not because you'll get a good look at the feng shui when returning from the restroom. It's amusing how an institution that's in the business of keeping people alive can't wait to remind us that we're all going to die someday. Fortunately, there's hope for the future. Explicitly told by the detailed murals on walls scattered about the hospital's various hallways. Large depictions of biblical events from Adam and Eve to the resurrection. Whenever I'm bored, I like to walk the premises and visit each mural in chronological order of which events the pictures represent. I don't do this as a means of satiating some hunger for religious salvation— but for the comedy of keeping in mind that people in fact believe this shit. No amount of steps through this five-story coffin can wrap my head around the idea that souls spend their time in purgatory before judgment. It's really that part that bugs me. It's a cruel idea to think that after all the waiting rooms we sit in so we can be told by doctors that we're deteriorating, we have to sit in yet another waiting room once we've passed on. It's pretty silly if you ask me. I never really saw it as a waiting room, per se. I must admit, however, the rest of the murals are quite compelling. The nostalgia of a simpler time is fun to experience. And the artwork isn't too bad either. When my walk ends at the lobby, I'm usually saddened that the fun's over. But where that fun ends, more begins. I can step outside through the automatic doors and look to my left. And just past the awning to the emergency room, not very far away... I can see into the waiting room, through the floor-to-ceiling windows, and determine if it's busy enough for me to casually walk in and pass through like I'm on some kind of mission that lacks importance but still needs to be done. Doing this gives me the chance to overhear some of the asinine reasons people have for visiting. My favorites are the drug addicts who come in and lie about their telltale signs of substance abuse. One man swore he was bitten by spiders all over his arm, (laughs) as though none of us here can tell the difference between bites and track marks. To his credit, he probably believed his story and saw the tiny arachnids swarming all over his arms, burrowing into his skin and finding a new home within his veins. The entrances resembling a miniature meerkat colony with a not-as-cute population. This week hasn't been anywhere near as interesting, but that will change soon. The staff tends to say, There's never a dull moment here, quite frequently. Either they're unaware of the fact that a moment is an actual unit of measure for time, or the gig has gotten so deep into their psyche that a week feels like a mere 90 seconds, which I can understand. It can be an eternity before anything interesting happens. Some guy losing his absolute shit is the grab of the collar we need before we lean forward just enough to fall down the rabbit hole ourselves. It's Friday night, and I'm more excited for tonight than usual. I've got a good feeling about it. Like we're at 10 of the 90-second countdown. It's been dull all week and I've had enough chuckles at the expense of those who seek solace in our murals, as I keep an ear open during my walks. I'm sitting in the break room, a drab and cold place that would oddly have a happier atmosphere if the walls reflected the color scheme on the other side of them. This eggshell with light wood floorboards makes me wonder if the person who designed this cage was a sadist or just blind. Never knowing what any of the names of colors mean, unless they're synonymous with emotions. And even then, they'd be only half right. I'm hoping for the former, in which case I like them. For my lunch, 2 a.m. has become lunchtime for me, and my body doesn't seem to mind, I'm having some macaroni and cheese that I quickly and lazily prepared. And by that, I definitely mean it came from a blue box. While I have a good feeling about tonight... I have an even better feeling that it'll last beyond that. So I'll save a more extravagant meal for later. Besides, after so many years of 2 a.m. lunches, everything starts to taste the same anyway. I finish my lunch, and just before starting my walk, I see him. He's being wheeled into his room, and before he makes it completely through the threshold, he meagerly turns his head in my direction. The snarl on his face gives me joy. We make eye contact and he returns to his normal position, looking up at the place he's hoping to go if he makes it out of this building in one particular way. I can't wait for the fun to ensue once his energy is back. I stick around for a little while until after the last nurse leaves the room and is long gone. I have to get a closer look at this guy. Upon entering his room, I noticed the empty bed next to him, closest to the door. He got the spot near the window. I'm sure he'll be quite satisfied with that, as the view of the courtyard just outside should make up for the lack of get-well cards and flowers that would normally take up the space on the dresser under the mounted television. The vacancy would make you wonder if there was anyone in the room at all. I walk up to the bed and take a better look at him. He's fast asleep and not the least bit bothered by the bright amber lights, illuminating the courtyard and flooding every room with a window facing them. Still, through the glow, the wrinkles that cement his face into a snarl are a brilliant display of brutalist architecture. There is nothing that will improve those jagged cheeks. I crack a smirk at him and take a step back to close the curtain hanging around his bed. I'm incredibly anxious for tomorrow morning. Part of me wants to pull up the chair that's taking up space in front of the empty bed. For whom, I'm not sure. Next to him and wait it out until he wakes up. But I know that seeing my face upon waking up will most likely startle him. Then the fun will end before it starts. I'll come back tomorrow. The sunset scene from a fourth floor window is painting the sky with a beautifully variegated palette that distracts my attention from the nine-foot-tall mural of Lucifer falling from grace. I adore this piece. It captures what so many people do here. The physical being isn't the only thing that dies, but souls, the psyche, the essence of the patients that physically expire, fall from their seemingly high pedestal so easily when they feel that it's time to make peace with their savior whomever that may be to them they all believe that confessing to every mistake shortcoming and utter fuck-up is going to negate the fact that they've committed any wrongdoing towards others or even to themselves i revert my attention back to lucifer his arms stretched out above him towards heaven as he plummets to his demise What's left of his beautiful wings detached and laying on the ground below him. Feathers scattered all about. His eyes focused towards them. It's his last glimpse of his once prominent majesty before he crashes through our ground, his roof, and renders himself trapped in his new kingdom. I'm willing to bet he admitted to every terrible thing he's done, too. It did as much for him as it did for everyone else. (laughs) I snicker at the thought and make my way to introduce myself to my new salty friend. I walk into his room to find him awake and sitting up in the bed, staring out the window at what looks like something quite distant. He's fixed, not noticing me as I walk deeper into the room and approach his bed. I look at the white dry erase board on the wall across from him, explaining the pain scale and pictures of a smiley face for no pain, to a crying one for unbearable the short message above the scale and blue dry erase marker is straight to the point welcome Mr. Johnston enjoy your stay I take it no one had anything nice to add I turn back to Mr. Johnston to get his attention hello Mr. Johnston he turns his head to me at a moderate speed maybe he did know I was here he scans me only moving his eyes and gives me a slightly perverted smirk, his bottom jaw hanging low enough to keep his mouth slightly agape, which doesn't help. Roy. He speaks in a weak, deep voice that resonates in his chest and is made prominent by his southern drawl that reminds me of what you'd hear in Florida once you get away from the castles and roller coasters. He keeps the scrutinizing smirk directed right at me and continues...
2: My name is Roy. Who are you?
5: I extend my right hand to him with authority. I'm not about to make him think he can follow through with whatever is on his mind, something that I really don't want to know. I keep my voice somewhat monotone and cold. Amelia. Roy directs his eyes to my gloved hand, then travels up my arm with a furrowed brow.
2: You cold or something?
5: I look down at my arm, covered by a white long-sleeved t-shirt under my scrubs. I get cold pretty easily. I've always been that way. He nods, finishes shaking my hand, and lets go abruptly, letting his hand fall to his side. He still gets some drugs in him, but at least he has his consciousness. He lets out a hard cough and then clears his throat. You know what I'm doing here? I do. I walk to the chair by the empty bed and pull it up next to Roy's bed and sit down. Do you? Roy gives a nod, but not a somber one. This nod doesn't beg for pity, nor does it show any fear whatsoever. It's one that has accepted his heart attack and probably knows why he had one in the first place.
2: Result of a fast life, Amelia. I lived too hard. Now I'm stuck in this bed talking to a pretty lady I have no energy to bag. <laughs>
5: he immediately follows his crass comment with a cackle, <laughs> not unlike what you'd hear from witches who have successfully found that eye of newt they've been searching for to finally complete their potion.
2: It's a shitty position, I'll tell you.
5: The space between my brows wrinkles up, turning my face into a landscape of valleys then admit my utter disgust for this man. Still, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for a reason. And that reason still excites me. I'm pretty sure he noticed my expression as he immediately stopped laughing and cleared his throat. throat. I leaned forward, resting my elbows on my thighs. Why don't you tell me about your hard life?
2: You really want to hear
5: about that? Absolutely. I have a feeling I'll enjoy the story. Besides, it could help us figure out exactly why you had that heart attack. Roy shrugs his shoulders and then struggles to reposition himself so he can sit up a bit taller. I get up to help him, but he pauses and shoots a sharp, threatening look at me. As to say, I can fucking do it. I read him loud and clear and sit back down to watch him sit up. Funny he didn't take the opportunity to be touched by me. But when his ego is at stake, I can see why nothing else would matter to a person like him.
2: But there's really nothing much to tell.
5: He finds his position and settles.
2: A lot of drugs, uh, back when it wasn't seen as so bad to do them. Some good days those were. Can't say they treated me good in the long run, obviously, but I wouldn't take back those days for shit. Most of the next 20 some odd years was a blur. I had some women, had a family. Add some more women.'
5: He reiterated about the women with a cheeky smile. I simply rolled my eyes in response and let him continue.
2: "'I was arrested a few times. Uh, I'm sure you saw that. "'Nothing was my fault. My ex-wife was a piece of work. "'She'd hurt herself and called the cops on me, saying I did it. "'Of course, there was nothing proven out of I so I got off pretty easy.' Ain't no way to go about being pissed at someone. I'll admit I misbehaved, but that's still too far to be taking things.
5: I sit back and cross my arms. I take it the misbehaving was... The women, yes? Roy gives me another shrug, but this one is completely different. This is a much more arrogant one. It's slower and accompanied by a cartoonish smirk and a raise of the eyebrows as he turns his palms up. I'm not impressed.
2: I couldn't help myself. If you saw some of the girls I was spending time with, you wouldn't blame me. Hell, you'd probably give the other team a chance, if you know what I mean.
5: This is followed by another cackle. (laughs) I certainly know there's nothing valid about his claim of sexual prowess. I know this conversation won't go any further and I really don't feel like sitting here all night to listen to the perverted drivel so I take a look at my watch and stand up I have to see some other patients but I'm glad I got to know you a little bit I'll be back tomorrow to see you I place the chair back in its spot
2: Maybe you can tell me about yourself tomorrow
5: I pause and shoot him a reassuring smile then put on a genuinely chipper tone I'll be happy to tell you everything about me tomorrow. He smiles back and I turn towards the door to leave. As I walk out, I know he's watching, but I'm not letting it get to me. Darkness overshadows my chipper smile, and it turns devious just as I pass through the doorway and leave him for the night. The sun sets again over the flat horizon. The western view from the fourth floor is one of the best in the city, in my opinion. It overlooks the edge of the skyline and runs off into a blanket of green and grays made by the canopy of moss-covered cypresses and oaks that shield the marshlands under them. Lucifer isn't going to take me away from this. It's beautiful. It's a shame this is my last day here. I take in the sun's departure a final time, and get myself in the headspace to go to Roy's room I close my eyes and take a deep breath clearing my mind of everything but one thought that I was sure I was able to ignore and have been doing successfully until now I've never done this alone it's not typical but here I am then he speaks up is it the guy in room 415? I open my eyes and look beside me he's a kid, about 8 years old Wearing jean shorts and a Star Wars t-shirt. It's about time he showed up. I smile. Yeah. He looks up at me and smiles back. You've been waiting for him for a long time. That's why I took my time getting here. I'm comfortable with you going solo on this one. He's all yours, Amelia. The confidence he has in me is humbling. Normally that would put a person under pressure. But I find it fueling. That's all I needed. Thank you. He nods. I have to get going. I'm sure someone saw me walking around alone and is trying to find me. A child was a bad choice. I chuckle at his mistake and start to make my way to Roy's room. But the kid tugs at my hand, stopping me for one more thing. You look nothing like an Amelia. (laughs) I'll consider something else next time. He lets go and I walk towards room 415. I get one foot in the door and I'm immediately greeted. Well, hello, Amelia. Roy exclaims this with a surprising amount of vigor. He's definitely feeling much better today. That's too bad. I give him a short wave and a smile. It's cordial, but borderline's undismissive. I may be happy to be working at that moment, but that doesn't mean I like the guy. How are you today, Mr. Johnston? Roy... My name is Roy. After one conversation, he thinks we've reached that level of informality. I'll let him enjoy that for now. I walk up to the foot of his bed and he smiles that predatory smile at me. It makes a tiny bit of vomit shoot into the back of my mouth and fall right down my throat.
2: How's your day been?
5: Pretty good. Not very eventful, though. Looking forward to something changing that soon.
2: He's hoping I'll have something to do with that.
5: (laughs) I don't acknowledge it at all. I take a look out his window, only being able to see the silhouette of the buildings and treetops that are a slightly lighter shade of black than the night sky that meets them. Everything is beautiful tonight. I look back at him with a small grin. You wanted to know about me today, yes?
2: Hell yeah, sweetheart. Tell me all about you.
5: Sure, but first maybe you can tell me about those girls from your past. Any good stories about those? The happiness on his face turns to a nervous expression, and I keep my face unmoved and fixed towards him.
2: There ain't much I remember, with the drugs and all.
5: There has to be one good story. Roy pauses and regains his confidence.
2: Uh, Like I said, I don't remember nothing. Besides, tonight is about you.
5: I nod, then briefly shake my head a little, then scoff happily. (laughs) Nah. Tonight is about Amber Wallace, about Tiffany Price, Amanda Hicks, and about 30 other girls. Do you know any of them? Roy's confidence is as short-lived as his sense of decency. His eyes grow cold and his frown radiates suspicion with a hint of confusion.
2: How do you know those names?
5: They were on the news. You couldn't have missed that. I start to approach him closer. What you should be asking me is how I know what you did to put them there. His eyes are the size of golf balls the second that sentence meets his ears. The ends of my smile reach my ears and I don't break eye contact.
2: Who the hell are you?
5: He asked this with an amount of authority he absolutely doesn't have in this scenario. Ha! Glad you asked. I stand up straight and throw my hands up. That is what we're here for, isn't it? I'm the one person you didn't want to see this visit. The one person who never wanted to meet those girls but had to... The one person who they told about what you've done in your alleged drug-induced stupor. My inability to refrain from theatrics is clearly making him uncomfortable and terrified. I can see it as he tenses up. I just can't help it. I'm the one who's been waiting for tonight for a long time and couldn't be more excited for this job. He frantically reaches for his remote keeping his eyes on me in the complete opposite way than last night and repeatedly presses the call button. I just sit and wait for the nurse to come. It's Brian who comes in. Nice guy. He's lived a clean and good life and has plenty of it left ahead of him. He's everything Roy should have aspired to be. What's wrong, Mr. Johnston? Roy's eyes dart between Brian and me.
2: Get her out of my room!
5: Brian looks in my direction then scans the room before addressing Roy. There's no one here, sir. Roy begins to shake. He can't believe his ears as he's looking at two people standing in front of him. You don't see the other nurse? It's just me, Mr. Johnston. The meds you're on might be causing some slight hallucinations, but that'll go away soon. You should probably rest, or you'll upset your heart, which is weak enough right now. Can I get you anything? Roy slowly shakes his head at Brian, who nods in response and walks out. Roy's attention is redirected back to me. What are you? Even better question. I never cared for the who are you inquiry. See, I'm whomever I want to be. He's spooked as my facial features morph into someone he recognizes. I can be the first girl whose life you ended. I say as Amanda. I morph again. Or the last, I say as Tiffany. Roy's breathing becomes heavy and quick. It's time to do what I do best. I take off one of my gloves and hover my hand over an exposed part of his leg peeking out of the sheets. There's one more face you need to see, and you should feel privileged to see it. Most don't get to. They can't handle it, and it would be inhumane of me to show it. You, however, have earned it. Congratulations, Roy. (laughs) The whites of my eyes turn black and spread to my irises like a massive oil spill being seen from space. The smile I display no longer shows a perfect set of straight white teeth, but a jagged row of small, sharp spearheads, indicative of a carnivorous life. Despite my face still being that of Amelia Prescott, my eyes and grin don't seem to be so attractive to Roy anymore. He breaks eye contact with me to look down at my exposed hand, black and charred, light smoke perpetually lifting beautifully from it as though the smolder will never be extinguished. I didn't ask for this, but I've come to not only make the best of it, but love it. His eyes come back to my face. Amelia's face. Now riddled with clusters of black freckles and sores. I can't stop smiling, as he can only shake his head in protest of what's to come. I know what's in his head. Please don't take me. I lived an honest life the past several years. I swear I'm good now. I shake my head back at him in response at the same frequency but the expression on my face isn't of fear and pleading but of sarcastic pity Ah, poor Roy don't beg you've proven to be so much stronger than that hearing that in his mind sends a shock down his spine that I couldn't be more excited to sense I place my smoldering hand onto the bare skin of his leg and the action is met with an immediate tensing of Roy's entire body His head whips back and stays there. His mouth agape, but not a sound is made. His eyes are open, and they are the only parts over which he has any control. It's like experiencing sleep paralysis. When you wake up in the middle of the night not being able to move, feeling like it's all a bad dream until you come out of it and still feel like it wasn't. That's not entirely the case with Roy, however. This is real. This is death, and it's not a dream. My face is the last he'll see in this life. His eyes finally close as his body relaxes and goes from its terrified state to a tranquil one. I listen for his drawn-out last breath as he departs, followed by the steady, peaceful tone of the flatline. I take a moment to take in the victory. Nurses and a physician come rushing in to tend to him. I turn and walk out, not being seen by anyone. I'd stay and watch, but I've seen this before, and it's not like I don't know how it'll end. Roy's gone. They'll rule it as a cardiac arrest, and be none the wiser of what really took place. <laughs> The sun sets over what pieces of the horizon I can see. The last hospital is impeding my view a bit, so I'm trying my best to enjoy this sunset from the other side of the city. This one doesn't have any artwork of any interest, nor importance. This particular case hasn't been half as exciting as Roy, but it's about to get better. I make my way to the room, walk inside with a smile, and close the door behind me. People say that when you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. I'm happy to say I've never worked a day in my death.
1: Meeting new people can be quite interesting. Some people have fascinating jobs, like podcasters. And in this tale, shared with us by author L Hutchinson, a man meets a woman who not only has a curious occupation, but one she invites him to participate in. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Aaron Lillis, Nicole Goodnight, and Mick Wingert. So even if it is your birthday, try to be wary with friendly strangers. They don't get much stranger than the woman who can exorcise any demon.
6: I met a woman who told me she's an exorcist. It was at Poppy's a little last bastion of diviness in my city that hadn't been swallowed up by gentrification yet. The kind of place with a mix of college kids there for the cheap shots and the blue-collar crowd there to unwind with some pool or darts after work. And I was there, by myself, on my birthday. It wasn't how I'd hoped to be spending my 30th birthday, but it's how I was spending it. I was telling the bartender there about that fact when the woman came up to me. She was older, maybe in her 50s. Her sun-wrinkled face and rough, cigarette voice made her sound like someone who'd be hanging out in a place like Bobby's. But she was dressed sharply, like she had just come from a boardroom.
7: Is it really your birthday?
6: Sure is. I waited for her to follow up asking why I was spending my birthday in a place like this. It was a question I didn't have a good answer to. But instead... Her face lit up when she heard it.
7: Really? That's great. Happy birthday. You shouldn't have to pay for your own drinks on your birthday.
6: She started to wave down the bartender, but then stopped.
7: Ha- it really is your birthday, though, isn't it? You're not making it up?
6: I got out my driver's license to prove it, which she looked at approvingly before ordering me a shot in a beer chaser. Well, that's awful kind of you, ma'am. And it was. Lots of people are excited to buy you shots on your 21st birthday. Less so on your 30th.
7: Rose, dear, you can call me Rose.
6: She sidled up on the stool next to me, looking on happily as the bartender brought out my drinks. Nice to meet you, Rose. What do you do for a living? Her outfit got me curious. She was dressed nicer than the usual clientele one finds in poppies.
7: Thank you for asking. As it happens, I'm an exorcist.
6: An exorcist? Well. Wow. I'm pretty good at making spirits disappear, too. I threw back the shot she had bought me.
7: Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I mean different spirits from that. I get rid of ghosts, poltergeists, and hauntings of all kinds. But mostly demons.
6: You're serious?
7: Completely. And that's
6: like job? Aren't exorcists usually priests?
7: Well, usually.
6: She signaled the bartender for two more drinks.
7: There are a lot of priests out there who get asked to perform exorcisms from time to time. But to be honest with you, most of them aren't very good at it. And when you have a real possession and the priests fail to do anything about it, sometimes people will call in a freelancer.
6: So you're better at it than them. She leaned in close, like she was telling me a secret.
7: I can exercise anything, and my clients pay me very well to do so.
6: Oh yeah? How much per exorcism? I was skeptical that someone could support themselves doing this without a second job, let alone make much money. But as the bartender came by with the next round of drinks, I saw Rose open her purse and pull a wad of cash the size of a softball out of it. She gave the bartender a hundred, without asking for any change.
7: Well, it depends on the exorcism. Each one is different, and you have to understand that these people are desperate. The possession they have gets worse and worse until it's constant physical and mental torture that cannot be alleviated with any kind of drug or painkiller. Plus, the process of removing a demon can be very tricky. It often requires months of preparation on my part. Including researching the nature of the demon, astrology, finding the necessary materials to draw the spirit out, which are a lot more complicated than just a bible and some water that a priest has said a few words over, by the way.
6: She said this with an upheld hand next to her mouth, as though a priest might be hanging out at poppies that night and be offended by what she was insinuating.
7: So, when it's all said and done, it's not uncommon for me to make somewhere in the seven figures. Which, I know, sounds like a lot, but my clients are generally the very wealthy, so they can afford it.
6: Seven figures. You're saying that you can make over a million dollars per year?
7: No, no, not per year. Her exorcism.
6: Needless to say, I was intrigued. Not only was this woman working in a world I was totally unfamiliar with, one I didn't even know was real, but she was also making more money than I had seen in my life each and every time. How had I managed to run into her in this cheap dive bar of all places? She must have detected my interest.
7: Would you be interested in seeing one? An exorcism, I mean. I'm just about prepared to finally perform one this weekend. I'm not good to use an assistant.
6: An assistant? What, like I would be exorcising the demon along with you? I pictured Jason Miller's character in The Exorcist.
7: Oh, no, nothing that difficult. You basically just need to be an extra set of hands to make sure all the steps of the ritual are completed. Uh, They can get kind of complicated, and it helps to have another pair of hands around. She
6: reached into her purse and pulled out a single pristine business card to slide to me. I picked it up and looked at it. It just said her full name, then Exorcist, and had a phone number listed.
7: If you decide you're interested, let me know by Friday. I'll need to let you know a few things to prepare ahead of time. Paid, of course."
6: She got up from her seat and patted me on the shoulder.
7: Oh, and once again, happy birthday!
6: Um, thanks. Now, I wasn't sure what to say. This is not what I expected to happen when I went out tonight. I finished my drink. But the rest of the night, I couldn't get my mind off of Rose and what she had said. Should I take this gig? Now, I know what you're thinking. You wouldn't be listening to me describe this turn of events to you if it were a totally fun time and everything went well. But I didn't know at the time that my life would turn into a horror movie. I thought this would be a nice chunk of spending money and a a great anecdote I could tell at parties. Rose seemed like she knew what she was doing. Maybe it was just conning rich people who think they're possessed out of money. Maybe there really was an other side, and I was going to get a glimpse into that world. Either way, I wanted to be there. And I decided to call Rose on Friday and let her know I would be her assistant.
7: I'm so glad to hear that. I was worried I'd have to try to find another assistant because I was going over the procedure and it really does require me to be in two places at once.
6: Rose sent me a document with the instructions for the exorcism on it. It outlined my very generous for a single day's work, pay for helping her, a time and a place to meet her, and went over the importance of words as part of the ceremony how stray conversation can completely alter the outcome, and that I should remain completely silent except for speaking as instructed in the document. It then gave a series of cues that would happen during the exorcism, and what simple action I would need to do or line I would need to speak when the cue happened. It read almost like a stage play. But if you just got the lines you needed to play your own part and nothing else... The whole document was pretty short, about one page. I remember thinking, this is it? It seemed strange that the amount of information I needed to be taking part in such an arcane procedure was so minimal, but I wrote it off as being just because her part in the exorcism would be a lot more involved. I had no problem memorizing my script by the time that weekend rolled around. I figured that would be simpler than holding a printout in one hand during the entire ceremony. I drove to the address she specified, which was a hotel out in the suburbs. The kind of place people go on business trips or when they're visiting family over the holidays and there aren't quite enough beds for everyone. I kind of expected it would be in an old church or some cabin in the woods. Knowing that this was happening in such a mundane location was not what I expected. I guess I didn't know what to expect. I'd never done this before. Rose had. She was waiting for me in the lobby when I arrived, dressed in a pristine white dress.
7: I'm so glad you could make it. I would have been in a lot of trouble if you couldn't.
6: Of course I had made it. Not only was she paying me well, but this was probably going to be one of the most interesting things I experienced in my young adult life. She led me up to the room where it was to be performed, but stopped me before going in.
7: Now, don't be surprised when we go into the room. There are gonna be things you won't understand. Maybe even things that will be terrifying and unbelievable to you. But it's absolutely imperative that you keep your wits about you, okay? Okay. You sure you're ready? Once we go in, there's no backing out. No leaving to collect your wits.
6: I felt pretty calm, but I took a deep breath for good measure. (sighs) I'm ready. Rose opened the door and led me into a large room with a king-sized bed, its headboard resting against the far wall. All of the remaining furniture was moved away from the bed and against the edges of the room to create space around it, and there was a figure tied down on top of the bed covers. There was a strange undulating noise that I soon realized was the sound of a young girl crying.
1: Please, please let me go.
6: I started to take a step closer to see if the girl was okay, but Rose put out a hand and stopped me. She gave me a stern look and put her finger to her lips.
7: Your trick cannot fool us, demon.
6: Rose approached the bed and examined the four ropes affixed to each one of the girl's limbs. They already looked secure, but she tightened each one of them. Each yank on the cords elicited a painful scream from the tied-up girl, and it finished with her (laughs) sobbing on the bed. At this point, Rose beckoned me forward. I came up to the girl in the bed, but saw that she wasn't a girl at all. It was a young girl's voice coming out of a man's body, maybe in his mid-forties. It was hard to tell. His face was covered in scratch marks, as though he had been clawing at it for weeks. As I came closer, the man's voice got lower, turning from the sound of a young girl to a man in an impossibly low voice as the sobs turned from screams into laughs. (laughs)
2: You know you cannot destroy me, exorcist. Once I move into a host, they are mine until they perish.
6: He then looked right at me. The eye contact was so intense, it almost felt like someone had pushed me. This is all you have
2: brought with you. I will break this pitiful human like a twig.
6: He then went back to his terrible, (laughs) deep laugh. I didn't know what to say. I looked at Rose, and she shot me a stern look back. I knew what she was saying to me. Don't let it shake you. Stick to the script. She opened her bag. And produced what were apparently the materials for the ritual based on the instructions she sent me we needed a long strip of white linen a jar and candles additionally she pulled out a number of incense and a bell these were apparently part of the ritual that i wasn't involved in i had my part and that's all the information she sent me the demon continued to taunt us and tug at the restraints as Rose took the jar and handed it to me. She also put a fresh, unlit candle on the floor behind me. She then took another candle that looked like it had already been burned for hours, lit it, and set it on the nightstand next to his bed. The flame seemed to mesmerize him, and he stopped struggling.
7: As this candle burns low, so too does your time in this vessel. You must be made to leave."
6: My ears picked up when she said it. It was my first cue to jump in. I was also somewhat mesmerized by her ceremony, but when I heard that, I diligently responded with my memorized line. You must seek a new vessel. Rose nodded at me approvingly. I think she was maybe worried I wouldn't have taken the time to remember my lines,
2: but I did. You cannot make me leave, exorcist! I refuse to leave!"
6: But the demon had lost his mocking tone from earlier. Now, it was more matter-of-fact. Rose picked up the linen strip. She handed one in to me and unrolled it as she made her way back to the man in the bed.
7: You must be cleansed from this world! You must be removed from Simon's body! I have come here to exercise you and force you out of my own will.
6: Once the strip was unrolled, she tied one end of it around the man's, apparently Simon's, left wrist.
7: And I shall remove you with the help of my assistant.
6: That was Q2. I volunteer for this,
7: of my own will. By our power, through our will. We demand that you leave this plane of existence!
6: At this point, the demon came out of its apparent trance and began snickering again. Oh, you fool! You terrible
2: fool! (laughs) So this is your plan? Do you even know what you're doing? What's going to happen to-
6: At this point, Rose took her bell and shook it over Simon's face.
7: Silence, demon!"
6: Somehow this made the demon recoil and shriek in a terrible, inhuman sound.
7: You cannot trick us with your lies! You cannot stop the ceremony!
6: After Rose placed the bell down, the demon was breathing heavily, almost like someone who had just felt respite from torture. Rose, calm as ever, ignored the demon and lit some herbs in the flame of the short candle. I don't know what they were, but they had a strong odor that filled the room when burnt. The demons seemed to especially dislike the smell, and Simon's body writhed as Rose held the burning herbs over it.
7: By my will, I command you to leave Simon's body. The jar shall be your new vessel.
6: This was cue number three. With the jar in my right hand, I held the strip of linen in my left about ten inches from the end. I maneuvered this end of the strip into the jar, as the instructions indicated, and held it taut, pulling up Simon's hand slightly. I command you, by my will, to enter this vessel. I held the jar aloft. The demon let out a terrible screech of pain as Rose lit another bunch of herbs and threw it on Simon's body.
2: No, no, no!
6: The linen strips seemed to become slightly warmer in my hand.
7: You have no choice, demon, but one path lies before you.
6: Rose took the bell and rang it in Simon's face again. The demon was screaming, pushing against his constraints as he reached for Rose, trying to grab her, hit her, kick her, do anything to stop her. I thought the bedposts were going to snap from the strain against them. The demon's thrashing pulled against the linen strip, and its temperature seemed to pulsate up and down in my hand. But I held it tight, the bell ringing, the demon screaming, the straining, it became more and more intense, until suddenly, it all stopped and Simon's body went limp.
7: The candle!
6: Rose pointed in my direction. I was too awestruck at first to know what she meant, but then looked behind me on the ground. The candle she had placed there was now lit. I looked up and saw that the one by Simon on the bed had gone out. Rose rushed over to me with a lid and screwed it on the jar after pulling the linen strip out.
7: Now it is sealed. Never to return.
6: Never to return. I echoed after her, completing the final step in my instructions. The room felt aggressively quiet. The whole ordeal was a rush of noise and emotions, and now it felt so still, I could hear the silence ringing. (laughs) Until it was broken by the sounds of Simon crying, now sounding much more human than he did before.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
7: (laughs) Oh, you're welcome, Simon. I'm glad you're better. Now let me just see off my assistant and we'll get you cleaned up.
6: She led me out into the hallway and closed the door behind her, quieting Simon's sobs.
7: You did real good today, Mel. Yeah,
6: that was... I didn't know how to describe what had just happened. That was... Amazing. Rose pulled out a roll of bills and counted out my payment, even giving me several hundred more than what she had initially promised.
7: A little bonus, since things went so smoothly. Go out and have some fun, alright?
6: She gave me a warm smile and retreated back into the hotel room, but there was something else on her face, an emotion I couldn't quite place in the moment. I drove home processing all I had witnessed. It wasn't until I pulled into my driveway that I noted a slight itching on the palm of my left hand. I didn't think anything of it at first. Itch happens, but it never seemed to go away. After I went to bed and woke up the next morning, my hand was still itchy. I couldn't see anything visibly wrong with it. No swelling or burn marks. It just itched. And no matter how much I scratched at it or slathered it with calamine lotion, it never seemed to get any better. It occurred to me that I didn't really know what all the ingredients were in Rose's exorcism kit. My first thought was that she used some kind of weird cloth that I held, and I was having an allergic reaction. I tried calling her to ask her about it, but I only got her voicemail. I left a message, but she didn't respond. I made an appointment with my doctor too, because it was becoming unbearable. If it was an allergic reaction, it was unusual to not have any visual symptoms to go along with the itch. She prescribed me an anti-itch cream and an antifungal to be sure, but neither of them really helped. It just kept getting worse and worse, and it was spreading too. Not just at my hand, but gradually moving up my arm, too. And what was more alarming was what I started hearing. A little quiet sound in the back of my mind. Like that song you had stuck in your head and then forgot about. There was a voice. So quiet at first. I could only hear it when I was in silence and not really thinking about anything. I listened, carefully, before realizing it was the demon's voice from that day. It's getting louder. Like he's dragging himself closer to me, or dragging me closer to him. I can hear it any time now, if I try. I can even make out what it says sometimes. He's calling me a fool, a terrible fool. He laughs at me. He tells me that I have such suffering in store. I tried calling Rose again, only to find the number was no longer in service. I wrote her another email, marking it urgent. I even went back to the hotel and spent some of my hard-earned exorcism money to bribe the front desk guy and get him to look up the information on that reservation. The name the hotel was reserved in was an obvious pseudonym. And it was paid for in cash. Searching her up online didn't yield anything either. I don't know if the name on her card was even real. The itching is getting worse. The voice is getting louder, more forceful still. No reply to the email. I'm beginning to think that all those lines in the exorcism script about the vessel were never meant to refer to the jar in the first place.
1: In our final tale, we meet a boy and his family who have moved into their new home. But the boy soon realizes that the new place isn't as fun as he thought, thanks to that bully next door. And in this tale, shared with us by author Craig Gridelli, Billy decides that the basement of the old house is the best place to play, even with its dust, cobwebs, and that old mirror. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Matthew Bradford, Jeff Clement, Sarah Thomas, Dan Zapula, Ellie Hirschman, Jesse Cornett, and Mary Murphy. So learn your lesson from Billy. A dark, dank basement isn't the best place to spend time. And he learned that upon further reflection.
8: Billy hadn't even noticed the mirror until the first time it spoke to him. It was lodged in a dank, cobwebby corner of the basement behind the stairs. True, Billy had been sneaking into the basement to play for days by then, but he kept mostly to the other side of the long, dark, rectangular subfloor. On that side of the basement, he could bring his toys down, scatter them on the floor, and play with them in the yellowish light of the single dim bulb that flickered inside its exposed fixture above. It wasn't that he wanted to play in the basement. Not exactly. He had been forced below ground by the existence of one Jonah Hoyt. Since moving to their new home, Billy had actually enjoyed playing in the yard. It was a big yard, much larger than the one in their previous home. In fact, That had been one of the selling points when Dad had explained to him why they had to move. Billy had liked their old home. It had white carpets, and his room was right in the middle of the second floor, next to his parents. All his toys were in the living room, which opened to the kitchen, so he could see Mom while he played. But they had to move. Dad had explained it. He'd done very well at work, and they got a great deal on this house. And he could finally buy a home the whole family could grow up in. Put down roots, he had said. Well, Billy didn't know about that. He was growing up just fine in the old home, and talk of whole family concerns sounded like another way of saying more stuff for your little sister. He was, at best, a tentative ally of his sister, who everyone called Miss Lydia. And in the new house... It was her room in the middle of the second floor. Billy had a bigger room now, and its own bookshelf. That was cool. But he liked being next to his parents at night. Not to mention that putting down roots wasn't an image he found particularly attractive. That night, after his father had first told him, he had dreamt about the new home. In his dream, he was playing in the living room of the new house when he started to feel funny. His legs felt very heavy, and he couldn't move. And he realized that his legs had started to grow roots straight through the floor into whatever dark earth resided below. And if that wasn't bad enough, something was in the house he could hear its footsteps upstairs. Heavy, slow, inhuman steps. But he was rooted in place and could not run. And the footsteps were getting closer. He woke, sweating, and spent the rest of the night in his parents' room. It was good to be the middle room in the hall. Still, he had to admit he did love the yard. It was humongous, farther from end to end than he could run without stopping to rest, and so flat that he could play any kind of game. Dad had said that they'd invite Jimmy from the old neighborhood over to play wiffle ball. This foretold playdate had yet to materialize, but the expansive lawn was real and incredible. Except for Jonah Hoyt. Jonah lived next door, and he was a few years older than Billy. Billy wasn't sure how many years exactly, but he was much larger than Billy. In fact, Billy had never seen a kid so large. And when he saw Jonah through the fence that first time, Billy remarked on how cool it was to be so big. But Jonah didn't think it was cool at all, and he wasn't too fond of his new neighbor either.
9: Go fuck yourself. Who the fuck are you, anyway?
8: Billy was not accustomed to that kind of language. Combined with Jonah's sudden onset of anger, Billy had thought it best to execute a tactical retreat. He disappeared back through the row of hedges that lined the fence, and he was running toward the back door. Soon after that encounter, the boys were formally introduced. Mr. and Mrs. Hoyt had come by a few days later, carrying a tray wrapped with aluminum foil and towing their large son behind them.
0: So nice to meet you.
8: Mom had ushered them in, taking the tray away into the kitchen.
0: Can I get you anything to drink?
8: In the new house, you couldn't see the kitchen from the living room.
9: Oh, no. We're just stopping by to say hello. I'm sure you have a million
7: things going on.
8: Mrs. Hoyt then leaned over to address Billy at eye level.
7: And what's your name, young man? I'm Billy. Well, nice to meet you, Billy.
10: This here is Jonah. Say hello, Jonah.
9: Very nice to meet you.
8: Jonah broke into a big, broad smile.
9: Nice to meet you, too.
8: Jonah looked even bigger up close.
9: Do you like to play with Star Wars toys?
8: Billy had asked once the parents wandered off to tour the house. Jonah spun toward him so violently that Billy almost fell backward.
5: Don't ever
9: come near our yard again, you little piece of shit.
8: The broad smile had vanished, replaced by a scowl.
9: I'm sorry I said you were big. Why don't you shut the fuck up, or I'll kick your ass. I'm going to tell my mom that you're cursing. If you tell your mommy anything at all, you'll be sorry. Very sorry.
8: That night, Billy had the roots stream again. He was in the house, only now it wasn't a mysterious monster approaching from upstairs. It was Jonah Hoyt. Jonah Hoyt... But with fiery red eyes, and the voice of something very old and
2: scary, I'm coming for you, you little piece of shit.
8: The Jonah Monster appeared in the upstairs hallway. It came out of Miss Lydia's room and lumbered toward the stairs. <laughs> when Billy woke up, he started for his parents on the other side of the hall. But stopped when he realized he'd have to pass Miss Lydia's room. The fear from the dream was still too real. He hated being in the far bedroom. He went back to bed, trying to think of anything else so as not to fall back into the dream. After that, Billy stayed away from the yard and stuck to the basement. He had to be careful, though. Dad said the basement was strictly off limits. If he was discovered, his parents might use their terrible power of locking doors. Then he'd be back in the yard and once again confronted with the Jonah monster. So Billy was careful, only going into the basement when he could hear Dad closing deals on the phone and when he knew Mom was upstairs with Miss Lydia. It was during one such trip into the basement that everything changed.
10: Billy.
8: He hadn't known it was the mirror at first, but the voice had been so clear that it froze him. His instinct was to run. Voices from the dark corner of the basement were not his forte. But something about the voice kept him paralyzed in place. It had been so welcoming, so friendly, so familiar. Billy... Though his heart was hammering, Billy responded.
10: Who is it? Come see.
8: Feeling in part like a mere passenger in his own body, Billy walked toward the voice, balanced in that strange place between curiosity and terror.
9: Are you a ghost? There are no such
10: things as ghosts.
8: Despite the growing sense of alarm ringing inside, Billy approached the sound. He could not say what held him from bolting. As mirrors go, it was nothing special, about the height of a grown-up with an old, dirty, yellow frame. The glass itself, though, looked immaculate. He could see himself clear as day, even though it was very dark in this part of the basement. Are you the mirror? he saw his own reflection speak the words as they came. No. It startled him to see his reflection speaking independently, and he knew now that he would surely make a break for Mom upstairs. But he didn't. He was, as it happened,
10: rooted in place. Then who are you?
9: I'm your friend, Billy. Wouldn't you like a friend? I have a friend named Jimmy. He's coming over to play wiffle ball. Oh, I- I'm sure that he is.
10: But he's not here now, is he? How about we just be friends for now, and when Jimmy gets here, he can be your
9: friend? Okay, but how can we play if you're inside the mirror?
10: Oh, that's easy, Billy!
8: It was so loud and echoey in the basement that Billy had to cover his ears. And the reflection had the biggest, happiest smile.
9: Except his eyes. Did his eyes look right for a second? I can help you with your little problem.
10: What problem? Jonah, of course. He's not very nice, is he? The
8: reflection turned its smile into an exaggerated frown.
10: I don't think so. And what does Dad say when someone isn't nice? They get in trouble? That's right, Billy. They get in trouble. How? If you listen closely, I'll tell you.
8: Billy listened. The next day, when Dad was on a work call and Mom was bringing Miss Lydia up for a nap, Billy snuck into the kitchen and opened the cabinet under the sink. He grabbed at the dish detergent. Closing the cabinet, he snuck past the door to Dad's office and out into the yard. Then he was off, running across the lawn, detergent tucked under one arm Through the hedges, he found the hole in the fence that the reflection had predicted. Billy slipped through and into the Hoyt's yard. He was nervous, but also excited. He knew he was being bad. Being bad was also not his forte. Other kids were bad. Billy was a good boy, usually. But this being bad, at the suggestion of the mirror, was an exhilarating change. Jonah should not have been so mean and scary to him. The reflection had told Billy that there would be a treehouse in the Hoyt backyard. Billy found it right away. After looking for any sign of Jonah, he ran across the well-kept lawn to the wooded area behind the pool. He climbed the ladder to the treehouse and ducked through the small doorway. Inside was a weird combination of stuff. Some books, some Sports Illustrated magazines a toy gun. Billy was pretty sure he saw a crate full of magazines with pictures of girls, but he didn't even want to think about that. He was here for only one purpose. Just as the reflection had said, there was a pile of snacks stuffed into a corner. Billy grabbed a half-full bag of Fritos, unfolded the opening, and dumped some detergent in. Later that evening, there was a knock on the door of Billy's new home. It was already after dinner, and Billy was in his pajamas, watching Revenge of the Sith for the sixth night in a row. His dad, who had still been working, came out of his office and
4: answered the door. Jack, how you doing? Uh, Unfortunately, uh, not great. Uh, Our boy Jonah is in the hospital. Oh my
11: god, that's awful. What happened? How can we help?
2: Yeah,
4: well, it's the strangest thing. The doctor says he ingested dish detergent somehow, but he swears he doesn't know how or when. Christ, that's awful, Jack. He's gonna be okay? Yeah, yeah, thank God. He's going to be fine in a few days, but he's really sick. It could have been worse. Right. Well, can we do anything to help? I... I guess I was just wondering if you had any idea how this might have happened. Me? No, how could I? Well... I, I thought I saw your boy... Billy is it I thought I saw him running across the lawn earlier today
8: with that dad arched an eyebrow he turned into the house
11: Billy can you come over here please
8: Billy got up and paused revenge of the Sith he walked over to the front door where dad was standing with Mr. Hoyt
11: Billy did you go over to the Hoyts today
8: No. But he could feel the tears starting to well up. He was a good boy, and he didn't lie to his dad. He was about to confess when Mr. Hoyt spoke directly to him.
4: Come on, Billy. I saw you.
8: Billy did not like that mean way Mr. Hoyt had spoken to him. He could see where Jonah got it from. Mr. Hoyt was just like Jonah.
9: I don't know anything about it.
8: Billy shrugged and walked back to the living room. He hit play on Revenge of the Sith and hopped himself up on the couch to watch.
11: If Billy says it wasn't him, it wasn't him. Right.
4: Of course. Sorry if I got excited there. You know how it is when something happens to your kid.
11: No apology necessary. Let us know if we can be helpful.
4: I will. Thanks, David.
11: Good luck with it, Jack.
8: And Mr. Hoyt departed. Dad headed back to his office and then stopped halfway. He circled to the living room instead.
11: You didn't have anything to do with the Hoyt boy getting sick, did you?
8: Dad sat on the couch beside Billy. Billy looked up at his dad. Again, he felt compelled to confess.
10: But Jonah was mean, and you heard yourself. He is going to be fine.
8: It was the voice of the reflection, which Billy heard in his head for the
10: first time. Besides, you don't want to get in trouble with Dad, do you? You don't want him disappointed in you, do you? Billy did not
8: want that. No. Dad took a long look at him and then smiled. He ruffled his son's hair and left to go back to work.
9: Hey, Dad. Yes. Where did we get that mirror in the basement? What mirror? the one in the basement corner
11: I'm not sure bud I'd have to ask your mother why just curious
9: I don't like it I think it might be a bad mirror
8: but it seemed he had used up dad's time away from work the old work phone had come out of dad's trouser pocket and dad was looking
11: down at it a bad mirror Tell Mom I think we should get rid of it. Okay, bud. I will.
8: Dad exited the living room to resume closing deals in his office. But they did not get rid of the mirror. In fact, Dad didn't remember to even ask Mom about it when he finally closed up the office for the night. If he had, she might have said that she didn't recall having a mirror in the basement. They would have determined that it was left by the previous owners and they may have found that passing strange, since the previous owner had left nothing else behind, not even light bulbs in the light fixtures. But Dad never asked Mom. It was a while before Billy saw the mirror again, because he felt better playing in the yard now. He also liked playing in the yard because Mom and Dad were increasingly debating each other. They weren't fighting. Dad was very clear that he and Mom were not fighting. Sometimes they just liked to... Debate. Debate was a funny word, and it was much better than fighting. But they seemed to debate an awful lot of late. They debated if Dad was working too much, and if Mom was unappreciative of the lifestyle he'd given them. Sometimes they debated if Dad did enough to help with Miss Lydia. Occasionally, though less often, they'd even debate if Dad was spending enough time with Billy himself. One time, they were debating if Dad was smoking cigars in the office. He insisted he was not, but Mom said she could smell them, and she could practically see the smoke when he opened the door. He countered that she should mind her own business and not worry about what he did in the office, as long as he was keeping the paychecks coming. It seemed to Billy like a silly thing, but Mom and Dad were debating it very seriously, So Billy went to grab his lightsaber from the corner by the door and head to the yard. On his way, he passed by the basement door. As he passed, he heard the mirror again.
10: Billy.
9: Go away.
8: If his parents were not so involved in the cigar debate, they might have wondered to whom Billy was speaking.
9: Billy. I'm going outside to play.
8: And he did. But he found, to his dismay, that he could still hear the voice in the yard.
10: Billy. What? Don't be angry with me, Billy. I helped you. You tricked me into hurting someone... Tricked? Oh, come now, Billy. You wanted to hurt that mean old fatty. No, I didn't. I wasn't the one who put that detergent in his disgusting snack bag. That was all you, Billy. You told me to. But you did it. I'm just an advisor. A friend. And besides... You have the yard to yourself again, don't you? Aren't you glad that you can play out here and not be scared of that fat bully? What do you want? Just to help you, Billy. Help me with what? Your parents fighting, of course. Isn't that making you very sad? They aren't fighting, they're debating. They're fighting, Billy! Billy had never heard it
8: sound angry before, and it startled him.
10: Stop being a little baby and wake up!
8: Billy started to cry.
10: No, no. I didn't mean to get mad. I'm just worried for you, as your friend.
8: Billy continued crying.
10: Look. "'Billy, I can help you. That's all I want. Can you come in the basement and talk to me? "'If you don't think that I can help you, you can smash the glass and you'll never hear from me again. "'Deal? If it can help Mom and Dad, isn't it worth giving me a chance?'
8: "'He nodded, wiping the tears from his reddened cheeks. Slowly,' But without deviation, he went back into the house and down into the basement. The stairs seemed older and creakier than he remembered. And the floor below seemed darker, even with the light switch at the top of the stairs flicked on. But Billy had his lightsaber with him, and that made him feel confident. At the first sign of trouble, he would smash the mirror with the plastic blade and be done with it. He went down the stairs... The door closed behind him, and the sound of it catching made him jump. Steadying himself, he came down the stairs and around to the mirror's dark corner.
9: What do you want?
8: Then the reflection smiled. Behind it, the background flickered. Was it a reflection of the basement, or something else? Something dark and red and full of fire
10: I just want to help your mom and dad that's all and if it happens to help you also uh, then that's an extra bonus right?
9: how can you help them stop debating help them stop fighting isn't it obvious? just tell me
10: you tell me Billy you know
9: the answer Is it Miss Lydia?
10: Yes! Miss Lydia! Exactly!
9: You want me to hurt Miss Lydia?
10: I don't want you to hurt anyone, Billy. But isn't she the cause of your parents' fighting? Before her, they never used to fight, did they?
8: Billy said nothing. Before her... They
10: used to spend all their time with you. You had the good room, and Mom and Dad would play with you whenever you wanted. Dad got a new job. That's why they fight. A new job so I could pay for Miss Lydia? Come on, Billy. You're a smart kid, isn't he always saying it?
8: Billy didn't answer, but it was true. Dad was always talking about needing his new job to support the family. Before Lydia, and before the new job, Billy couldn't remember the subject ever arising.
10: What would I do? Oh, it's easy, Billy. So easy. When Mom puts her in the bath, in that little laundry crate she uses, wait till Mom goes to get the towel, and you just dump it dump it? Yes, Billy. You can do it. It's easy. Just dump the crate and let the water take care of the rest. Yes, Billy. You can do it. It's easy. Just dump the crate and let the water take care of the rest.
8: Again, the reflection smiled, but its teeth were different. They weren't Billy's teeth anymore. They were sharp and uneven and stained. Without thinking about it, Billy reared back with his lightsaber and smashed the mirror. Glass split into shards and fell to the basement floor. Not sure what to do next, Billy went back upstairs. He wanted to tell his parents about what he'd done and what he had seen. But when he got up the stairs, they were debating again.
0: You said you'd be here for dinner tonight.
11: I will be here.
0: But you'll be working.
11: I've got important calls to make. What do you want me to tell you?
8: Just then, the baby monitor Mom was holding let out a shriek.
0: (sighs) Miss Lydia.
11: We can talk later I'll try to finish up early and Maybe we can watch a movie with the kids before bedtime
0: Whatever you say
8: Mom headed upstairs to retrieve Billy's crying sister
11: Hey, uh, Dad? Not right now, buddy I'm already late for my next call Can we chat tonight? Of course
8: But they didn't chat that night Dad worked through dinner, and through the movie, and then through bath time. Billy used to take separate baths for Miss Lydia, but the new house had such a big tub on the second floor that Mom got in the habit of doing both at once. It was easier that way for her, especially without Dad's help. Miss Lydia was in her crate, and Billy was splashing around beside it. As Billy was trying to cover himself in bubbles, for no reason at all, Miss Lydia started to cry.
0: Okay, honey, okay.
8: Mom uncorked the drain stopper just as Billy was starting to have fun.
0: Billy, honey, can you dry yourself off and get your PJs on?
9: Yes, Mom.
8: Mom walked to the linen closet on the other side of the big bathroom and grabbed two towels. Dumper, Billy thought, recalling what the reflection had told him. He looked at Miss Lydia in her crate, squealing. He looked at Mom, and he could see the way Lydia's crying made Mom's brow furrow. Mom placed Billy's towel on the side of the tub, gathered up Miss Lydia, and wrapped her in the other. In a flash, she was out into the hallway and then across to Miss Lydia's bedroom, leaving Billy alone. Well, not alone. The reflection was glaring at him through the bathroom mirror.
10: What are you? Your friend, Billy. Like I said before.
8: The mirror shifted, and now Billy was seeing Miss Lydia's room. Mom was cooing and petting Miss Lydia as the wet towel was replaced with a diaper and a onesie that read, Girl Boss.
10: Remember when Mom used to love you like that?
9: Mom tells me she loves me every day.
10: When you're ready, come talk to me.
8: Then it was gone just the normal bathroom mirror again but the reflections of voice its non-billy voice lingered a moment in his head
10: just don't say anything about me billy you wouldn't want me to get angry again
8: that night billy had the root stream again this time it began in the yard He was playing in the yard with his lightsaber when the roots came. They grabbed at his ankles, locking him in place. Billy hacked at them with the lightsaber, but the lightsaber snapped in two. Then he was falling. The roots were pulling him down through the grass of the yard. They pulled down. 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 He realized he was being carried into the basement. Right through the basement's solid outer wall and into the dark corner where he shattered the mirror. But where the mirror had been, there was just a gaping, open mouth. It had long, curved teeth, and the roots were coming from the mouth, dragging him down, down, down. Billy woke up, clawing at his own legs.
9: A dream. It was just a dream.
8: His heart was pounding, and he felt a sudden panicked sureness that, despite what he had done to it, the mirror was still sitting quietly undisturbed in its dark basement corner. He had to know. He climbed out of bed, his bare feet padding gently across the white carpet of his room and out into the hallway. Moving quickly and quietly he snuck down to the basement door and opened it. He switched on the light. It flickered, as if barely able to maintain its already meager strength. Billy swallowed hard. His chest felt like it might rip itself apart with anxiety. But he had to know. He had to know. He went down the stairs. As he reached the bottom... The lights gave one last brave flicker, then went out completely. But the basement was not pitch black. In the corner where the ruined glass shard should be, the mirror was fully intact and glowing red. Billy gathered his courage. He didn't have his lightsaber this time, but it didn't matter. He was going to sprint over to it and smash it on the ground. He'd stomp it into oblivion if he had to. But as he came, charging wildly, its swirling red light gave him pause. It was so strange.
9: The spiral. It is so... It is so...
8: When Billy came back up the stairs, he was smiling. He listened for the sound of a baby's cry or the heavy footfalls of groggy parents. Nothing. He brought himself back up to bed. The next day, Billy did not venture into the basement. He did not know if his midnight trip had been a dream. But he wanted nothing to do with the basement, the mirror or the reflection anymore. He resolved to tell his parents about everything that night at dinner. But he could barely get a word in at dinner. First, dad was late. Mom shouted so that dad could hear in the office.
11: Can you hurry up? It'll get cold. Be there in a sec.
8: But the yelling startled Miss Lydia in her baby seat which was placed like a throne in the middle of the dinner table. Miss Lydia started to cry. Fuck. Billy had never heard Mom say that word before. She got up and grabbed Miss Lydia, throwing the baby over her shoulder and heading out of the kitchen. Billy was alone at the dinner table. Mom was walking her up and down the length of the house. Dad entered the kitchen from the other direction.
11: I'm here, where's the fire? Mom went to take care of Miss Lydia. Figures. Tell her I'm going to make a quick call and to let me know when she's ready.
8: When Mom returned, she placed Miss Lydia back in the baby throne and headed off towards Dad's office. Miss Lydia looked at Billy. She smiled at him. Or was it a smirk? What do you want? Miss Lydia didn't answer, unless drooling was an answer. By the time Mom had corralled Dad and they'd all joined the kids at the table, the atmosphere of tension was so thick that Billy did not dare bring up something weird and scary that might get him in trouble. Better to save that for good moods. Dinner used to be a time of good moods. That was before Miss Lydia, though. After dinner, Dad went back to work, and Mom took the kids up for baths. Miss Lydia into that stupid crate, and Billy there to be cold and ignored. He couldn't even stretch out and get fully under the warm water when the crate was in the tub. Billy didn't look at the bathroom mirror as he played with the bath bubbles. He didn't have to. He knew what he'd see. Miss Lydia must have seen something in the mystery of the bathtub currents that amused her because she started to giggle.
9: Oh, you think the bath is funny? Yes, you do. Yes, very funny.
8: (laughs) Mom added some light tickling to the one-sided conversation. Lydia continued to giggle and smile at Mom. Billy smashed the water, sending a big wave into the crate and soaking Miss Lydia. The baby's laughter turned to tears.
7: Billy! What's
0: the matter with you? You got your sister all wet.
9: Sorry, Mom. It was an accident.
0: You have to be careful, buddy.
8: She shook her head and frowned.
9: Okay, all done.
8: Reaching down, Mom yanked the drain plug. The soapy water started to swirl away. Down, down, down.
0: I'll grab towels.
8: Miss Lydia, still shaken from the unexpected tidal wave, looked at her brother and screamed all the louder. She was not fooled by Billy's innocent act. It was over before Billy even realized what he'd done.
9: Stop crying.
8: He reached over to the laundry crate and flipped it. Miss Lydia smacked her face on the floor of the bathtub, mouth and nose submerged in the shallow bathwater. Oh, my God! Mom dropped the towels and in two rapid strides was beside the tub. She plucked Miss Lydia from the water, revealing a round, cherubic face covered in suds. The baby coughed and gagged. Mom, knowing that coughing was a positive sign, burst into tears.
5: Oh, thank God, thank God.
8: (sighs) Miss Lydia coughed until her lungs were clear and then showed them off with a new round of crying. Mom put her gently into the half-circle baby pillow they left pre-positioned in the bathroom at all times. Then she spun on Billy.
0: You
8: Whatever spell had possessed Billy in those awful moments broke. He erupted into his own bout of tears. He jumped from the tub, soaked and shedding water everywhere, and ran into Mom's arms. She knelt and accepted his tormented hug as he threw his skinny arms around her neck.
9: The mirror made me do it. What mirror? Billy?
5: What mirror? In the basement.
8: Then he crumbled into sobs so heavy he could no longer form words. Just then, Dad came rushing in.
0: What's going on here? David, go downstairs and get rid of that old mirror in the basement.
11: What? What mirror?
0: In the basement. There's only one mirror, right in the corner behind the stairs.
11: Can you tell me what's going on here?
0: Just get rid of the fucking mirror, okay?
11: If Billy did something, don't let him blame the mirror. He tried that shit on me the other day, too.
0: Jesus Christ, David. Just get rid of the goddamn mirror, please.
8: With a huff, Dad left the bathroom and headed down to follow orders.
9: I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry.
8: The tear storm had mostly blown itself out leaving Billy with only sad whimpers. I should have told you.
0: It's okay, honey. You can tell me now.
8: And he did. He told her everything, finally. Mom listened carefully, first putting Miss Lydia down for bed while Billy sat in the white rocking chair. Then they left the sleeping Lydia and went over to Billy's bedroom, where he finished the story, as Mom put on his pajamas. He told her detail by painful detail, up to the point where the swirling red light put something in his head that wouldn't let him think straight. By the end, Billy could barely stay awake. The accumulated stress of the whole experience came calling, and an exhausted Billy fell into a dreamless and peaceful sleep. But mom had questions, a lot of questions. Her first stop was dad's office. She called through the closed door, behind which she could hear her husband typing furiously.
0: David, did you get rid of that mirror?
11: Yes, on a call, can we chat in a few minutes?
0: Yeah, come find me when you're done.
8: She left the office and went straight to the basement door. First priority was to make sure the damn mirror was gone. She had to see it for herself. Even if Billy's whole story was some deluded fantasy, and Mom had to believe that it was, she still wanted that mirror out.
0: Are you really so sure it was a fantasy?
8: And the plain answer was no. No. She wasn't sure. Her logical mind told her it must be, and yet, she had seen something. Something she couldn't describe, even in her own mind. The closest she could get to it was remembering the old 3D flip books from her childhood, where you had to wear paper glasses with the blue and red lenses to make the images coalesce. Without them, looking at the page, you only saw two slightly misaligned drawings. That was what it was like. When she had seen Billy flip Miss Lydia into the tub, she had seen two misaligned images. One was her sweet, skinny boy. The other... She reached the bottom of the basement stairs. Before she even turned to look at the offending corner, she knew the mirror was still there. Instinctively, she arched her neck to look toward the voice, but a warning bell ringing inside stopped her. She caught herself just before the swirling red light in the glass came into view. No! She put her hands over her eyes, just to make sure she didn't accidentally catch a glimpse. Then she fled back up the stairs, away from the beast lurking in her basement. She had to find David and they had to figure out what to do next. When she got to the top of the stairs, she was expecting to hook left, back toward the home office. She was startled to find David not in his office, but sitting on the couch in the living room to her right.
0: Oh, David! You scared me! The mirror, it's still there! It...
8: She trailed off as the picture before her came into focus. Sitting on the living room couch, cigar clenched between his teeth, David was smiling at her.
10: Oh, Miranda. Miranda, Miranda.
1: have ended are you feeling all right we did our best to give you a fright you may feel safe in the bright sunlight but soon once again you'll be sleepless tonight the no sleep podcast is presented by creative reason media the musical score was composed by brandon boone our production team is phil Mykolski jeff clement and jesse cornet our creative content manager is olivia white our editor-in-chief is jessica mcavoy please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show on behalf of everyone at the no sleep podcast we thank you for being sleepless tonight and for being a supportive season pass member This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.,